Welcome to the new revolution in fitness and performance. The Ardell Training Podcast. Forging athletic bodies around the world. Here's your host, physical therapist and strength coach, Scott Ardella. Hey guys, if you're looking for top-level strength and conditioning equipment and gear, my primary resource is Rogue Fitness. Rogue has exceptional quality kettlebells, bars, plates, sleds, conditioning equipment, home gym racks, apparel, and everything you need to train strong and get results. I've been recommending the kettlebells for a long time, but all the equipment and gear is top-notch. So if you're looking to add equipment or start building your home gym, Rogue is the place to go. Go to ardellotraining.com slash rogue and check out all the great equipment, accessories, and apparel. Again, that's ardellatraining, R-D-E-L-L-A, training.com slash rogue, R-O-G-U-E. All right, guys. Welcome to episode number 122. And in this week's show, I have Sue Falsoni. She's a physical therapist and strength and conditioning specialist. I'll tell you all about her and more about this interview in just a minute. Before we get into that, though, I did want to let you know about some kind of crazy stuff going on this week. So in the past few days, it's been really kind of hectic, really kind of crazy because I just transitioned Ardella Training to an entirely new website, a new platform. And the whole reason is to make it uh, look better, a whole new visual appeal, new navigation, make it easier to find things, better functionality. And we're still working through some updates on the pages and some tweaks with the website, but the new website is up and running. Again, you can go to ardellatraining.com if you haven't seen it yet. I just posted a new comprehensive article titled The Ultimate Guide to Kettlebell Training. This is not a light read. It's very, very deep. It took me a long time to put this one together, and uh, I think you'll get a lot of value out of that no matter where you are in your training. So check that out. Again, that is the ultimate guide to kettlebell training. Look for many new guides like that that will be coming on the site. A lot of high-quality content that will be coming soon on ardellatraining.com. So I'm glad that the worst is over. We definitely had some glitches as we transitioned over to the new site, but looks like the worst is over at this point and uh, things are up and running. And like I said, we have just a couple more tweaks to make and then things should be all set. So as always with the show, as we're going to get ready to get started here, if you like the show, please be sure to drop in your review in iTunes or Stitcher. That would be fantastic if you take a minute to do that. And if you've already done it, thank you so much. So this week on the show, guys, I have Sue Falsoni. She is a physical therapist, strength and conditioning specialist, as I mentioned. And we talked about her approach to uh, treating her athletes. We talked a lot about the shoulder. I have to tell you that the shoulder is a real passion of mine. When I was in the clinic, I worked with a lot of shoulder patients One of my mentors was a guy named Marty Kelly, who is the author of a great book about the shoulder, and uh, I really learned a ton from Marty. I treated a lot of shoulder, knee, and spine patients. That was really where I uh, 
specialized in as a physical therapist. And I, I love the shoulder joint. It's very complex. There's a lot going on there. And I'm always still so passionate about the shoulder. And that's one of the great benefits of kettlebell training is the shoulder benefits, the shoulder health that kettlebells provide for the shoulder is really, really outstanding. Sue talks about a concept called centration, which is really how the rotator cuff functions optimally to do what it's supposed to do. And that is to really hold the humeral head in the glenoid, in the socket, in the shoulder. And that's why I love kettlebells and an exercise like the Turkish getup, because that's exactly what the Turkish getup does is it fires dynamically and statically to hold that humeral head in place and make the shoulder joint function very optimally. So again, we're going to talk all about that in this interview and talk about uh, some really uh, great uh, training approaches that Sue will share. You're also going to hear about uh, dry needling as well. If you don't know anything about that, you'll learn all about it in this interview session. And again, I think you're going to get a lot of value out of the interview with uh, Sue. So Sue is a board certified clinical specialist in sports physical therapy. She is also a athletic trainer. She is a certified orthopedic manual therapist for the spine and certified as a strength and conditioning specialist through the NSCA. She worked at Athletes Performance for 13 years, last serving as the Vice President of Performance, Physical Therapy, and Team Sport. She worked with the LA Dodgers for six years, last serving as Head Athletic Trainer and Physical Therapist. She holds the distinction of being the first female head athletic trainer in any of the four major sports in the United States, including Major League Baseball, the NFL, NHL, and NBA. She is currently the head of athletic training and sports performance with the U.S. soccer men's national team. So guys, let's jump into the interview with Sue Falsoni. I think you're really going to enjoy it and uh, learn a lot in this session. Sue, thank you so much for taking the time to do this call, and uh, I think this will be a great interview. Sue is a physical therapist and strength and conditioning specialist. Sue, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your background as a physical therapist and what led you to become a PT? Sure. I, um, you know, in high school, I'd always thought I would go to medical school. I uh, thought orthopedic surgery was sort of the way I wanted to go and um, ended up, you know, injuring my hamstring in, in high school playing soccer and ended up going to physical therapy and just thinking that that was a really cool experience. And I thought, well, maybe I'll, you know, maybe I'll do this. And so, you know, when I got into PT school and kind of started getting into it, I realized, you know, surgeons didn't get to do what I love to do, you know, and so, um, you know, that interaction and that, that walking with the patient through the process, I thought was just really cool. So I decided to stick with physical therapy and, um, worked in general orthopedics for a couple of years and didn't, uh, definitely enjoyed that experience at the time. It knew that's not where like my passion was lying for a long term. So, um, decided to go back to grad school and actually got my athletic training certificate, uh, after my PT license. So a little bit backwards, which I tend to do things a little bit backwards. So (laughs) rolls right right along. Um, and so, yeah, then, uh, then, you know, kind of had that dual credential combo coming out of grad school and, um, you know, went from there. So it's, uh, it definitely took me a little bit to kind of figure out exactly what specialty I wanted to be in, but I, uh, 
you know, once I kind of came out to Arizona, which I moved out here on a complete whim, I didn't know Mark, I didn't know anybody, quite frankly. And, um, you know, I had randomly met Mark after reading an article in, uh, in Sports Illustrated. And so everything just sort of kind of clicked right place at the right time, I suppose. Excellent. Now, you worked for a long time with a professional sports team and professional athletes. Can you talk about that experience? Yeah. When I, after, you know, meeting Mark and working for athletes performance, you know, there were so many, you know, primarily that's what we saw was, was the professional athlete, whether it was baseball or football or basketball, golf, tennis, you know, we just, we had a lot of, a lot of different types of athletes in there. And, um, you know, at one point around 2007 or eight, I kind of get the years mixed up now, um, you know, the Dodgers had approached athletes performance to, to help them sort of just create, you know, a system for, uh, for their organization. And, um, that kind of became, you know, my jam for a little bit. And then I started working closely with Stan Conti, who was, uh, their, um, director of medical services at the time. And, uh, you know, we got along well and our philosophies clicked well. And so my role with the LA Dodgers grew and, um, finally became, you know, their head athletic trainer in 2012 and 13. And, um, so, you know, just kind of, uh, it just kind of, just kind of organically grew, um, which, which is, which is cool. You know, I didn't never kind of push too hard towards sports medicine, but I knew that's where I liked it and where my passion was and sort of, you know, being able to spend some time at athletes performance and kind of getting those connections and, and contacts, you know, was just absolutely invaluable. Yes. Now, do you still primarily work with athletes or is it a combination of athletes and the general population or? No, I pretty much still work with athletes. Um, and quite frankly, I don't think I've worked with a female athlete since like 2007. Wow. <laughs> so wow. <laughs> I tend to, you know, I've been yeah. with, the, with the Dodgers for, you know, I was with them for six years and, and now I'm with the U.S. men's national soccer team as their uh, head of athletic training and, and head of sport performance. So, um, yeah, I've primarily been working, uh, you know, with the male professional ath- athlete you okay. know, ages Okay. 18 to 36. Beyond that, (laughs) my population is pretty limited. (laughs) Now, as a PT, what, uh, how would you describe your area of specialization as a physical therapist? I think it would be sport performance, um, and sport rehabilitation. You know, I think that, um, you know, now, the sports stuff is such a subset of the orthopedic world. You know, um, I think sometimes people think orthopedic and sports physical therapy are synonymous with each other, and they're and they're really not. Um, orthopedic is really uh, sets the foundation for sports medicine type work, but then, you know, really kind of the sports medicine and the sport performance is really a subspecialty of it that you need an unbelievable foundation in orthopedics for. Um, but you know, when you start dealing kind of in, in the sports world, you know, you're dealing with so many different things, you know, that just are not just orthopedic, you know, we start to, you know, do a lot of internal medicine type stuff, depending on the situation you're in and, and, you know, knowing a little bit more about some of the diagnostic stuff that we're doing. Not that orthopedic physical therapists don't do that. It's just a different setting um, and just really sort of a subspecialty of orthopedic. So, you know, that's, that's basically where I spend my time is, is in that sport performance and, and sports medicine area. Yeah. Now, what type of injuries are you dealing with now for the most part? So I imagine with the Dodgers, it was a lot of shoulder, a lot of elbow and I imagine that's shifted now working with soccer players. Yes, it has shifted <laughs> significantly. So, right. uh, you know, now a lot of typical 
groin issues, hamstring issues, sports hernia issues, um, you know, just sort of pelvic girdle type stuff um, as opposed to shoulder girdle type stuff. So yeah, completely different shift, you know, nothing brand new or surprising, but it's, um, yeah, it's, it's just amazing at how, you know, the different sports deal with different things and, um, you know, based on what they're doing. So it's, it's been quite a shift, but it's, it's been fun. It's been a great learning experience so far. Nice. So I have a couple of questions here before we get into, we're going to talk about your new DVD, uh, the shoulder, but I have a couple of things I'd like to uh, ask you about before we get into that. Um, the first one is around dry needling. So I'm wondering if you can explain what is dry needling, what are the benefits and what do you typically see as far as results with this uh, technique? Dry needling is, um, it's, it's really been a game changer for me, um, regarding my practice. You know, we, we use a, a fine filament needle, um, that is the same needle that an acupuncturist would use. And, um, we really follow more biomedical neurophysiological, um, principles, um, yes. as opposed to anything in Eastern medicine. And so, you know, utilizing, um, you know, our knowledge of the, um, anatomy and the musculoskeletal system, the neurophysiological, uh, systems and, um, you know, really kind of being able to, um, really being able to, um, help stimulate the body. And really what it does is it helps to enhance your own self healing potential. So as opposed to, you know, taking a lot of drugs or a lot of anti-inflammatories. We have so many anti-inflammatories that have the potential to be released and working for us in our own body. And and that's really what dry needling does is it really helps to um, improve your self's um, self-healing potential. So is it more of a, um, is it changing the, the pain perception or maybe, I wonder if you can explain maybe the, the uh, physiological process going on there. Sure. As you, as you insert a needle locally, right? Like, so whatever it may be, let's say it's, it's in your elbow. And so if you insert a needle there, we're going to get, um, some physiological changes happening there. We're going to get, um, some CPRG, um, I'm sorry, CRPG released right there, which is an anti, uh, anti-inflammatory and an anti-pain mediator. Um, and so that's going to be released right at the local area. So um, that's how we sort of locally would treat something. Um, at the same time, from a segmental level, we get uh, enkephalin released at the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. And so, you know, if I'm working in an area that relates to C6, then, you know, even if I don't put a needle at C6, things are still happening throughout that spinal segment. So we have, you know, things happening segmentally as well from an uh anti-nociceptive or a, a pain standpoint. Um, and then systemically, we also get an opiate release within our brain. And so, you know, that again helps with, uh, with pain. And so we get this really great physiological cascade of anti-inflammatories and anti-nociceptive um, chemicals sort of running through our body, both locally where we insert the needle, segmentally where um, the spot is associated with and systemically within our brain. So there's a lot going on physiologically and, um, which is why, you know, I kind of use the phrase dry needling treats nothing and it treats everything at the same time. Um, (laughs) you know, it's, it's kind of one of those things that, 
yeah, it's got, it's got the potential to, to really help. And it has just been a game changer in my practice. Awesome. Now, is it more effective for acute pain or for chronic pain or both? Uh, it works for both for sure. I equate, you know, chronic pain is, is like anything, you know, it, it takes longer to get rid of when you've had it for that long. It just takes longer to get rid of. And, and dry needling is, is no different, you know, typically to what the dry needling does is it enhances your body's self-healing potential. And so if you've got a lot of different, um, it's got a lot of different things going on. You've had chronic pain, you know, your system isn't very healthy, then you're going to need more sessions to ideally um, help with what you're feeling or maybe um, have more of a sort of long-term um, interventions with, with the dry needling. And yet from an acute standpoint, you know, things that haven't been around for a very long period of time are a lot easier to get rid of. And so, you know, maybe you only need three or four five treatments and then you're done and it's gone. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, dry needling doesn't provide us necessarily anything magical. It's the same way, um, you know, with any type of treatment with chronic pain versus, versus acute pain. All right. Well, I wanted to make sure that I asked some questions around dry needling. Cause I think that's, um, it's kind of a hot topic and quite honestly, it's something I didn't know a lot about. It's not something I did, as I mentioned, when I was a PT. Now, where can people go to, to find out more about dry needling? And, and what do you recommend? How do they find out how to find a dry needling practitioner? Yeah, head to um, head to my website, uh, which is systemicdryneedling.com. And on there is a bunch of information about dry needling, what it is, how it works. Um, if dry needling is within your uh, practice act as a healthcare professional, you know, it's got my upcoming classes. I, I teach in conjunction with Dr. Ma. Um, and so we have a really practical class Um that uh, is a very joint-based and, and um, skeletal, musculoskeletal system-based course. So it's really, really fun. Um, so you can check that out. And, and as far as a dry needling practitioner, um, you know, in your area, if you, um, if you type that into Google, I'm sure you can find it. If you go to my website and just, you know, even email like a, on me on my contact uh, list. I can always look to see who I know in whatever area people are in. And ideally, once I'm, my website's getting revamped right now as we speak, and so I'm hoping to have a, a find practitioner button up there, which would be which is going to be helpful for everybody. So All that's right. on its way. Excellent. Excellent. All right. All right. So let's uh, shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about your new uh, shoulder DVD from On Target Publications. And uh, well, tell us about the DVD. What was the uh, creative process? Uh, and how did the uh, the DVD come about? Yeah, you know, I've talked with Lurie for quite some time about putting out, you know, something. Um, and, you know, just with my time spent with the Dodgers, it just seemed like the shoulder was a natural fit to begin with. And so, um, you know, really kind of worked with her for a while and, you know, creating the content and what we wanted to, to talk about. And then the filming process, which was, you know, really interesting. And, um, you know, and then really she took it from there from an editing standpoint and put everything together. And so she's just been unbelievable to work with and learn from. So, um, but yeah, I think as far as like the topic and, and why, you know, we decided to start with that one, I think, you know, really kind of just stems from the amount of time I've spent in baseball. And, um, you know, even though right now I'm in soccer, I <laughs> spent, uh, spent yeah. a lot of time in that arena and, and, and the shoulders, a huge passion of mine, you know, it's, it's a complicated area that, you know, 
it's a complex, it's a shoulder complex. Um, and I like that challenge. I like, um, you know, I like trying to figure out the puzzle pieces. And so the shoulder is definitely a passion of mine. And, um, so yeah, we figured that would be a good one to start with. Absolutely. Yeah. So when I was a PT, I mean, clearly, I mean, the shoulder was by far my favorite joint. Um, so I, Treated a lot of spine, shoulder, knee patients. Those were the big three areas for me. But shoulder was just an amazing, amazing complex structure. Like you said, there's so many, it's, it's a puzzle really, because there's so many things that, yeah. that are going on, especially with the role of the scapula and things like that. Talk about some of the common injuries uh, maybe th- that you've seen and then maybe how's that different from what occurs in the general population? Sure. You know, in the sport population, I mean, obviously we're dealing with, you know, I'm dealing with, with guys who are, you know, 18 to 35 or so. Um, and so that's a pretty specialized population. You know, most of these guys too, obviously the overhead athletes have really common, um, pathologies that occur. So for example, you know, we see a lot of labral tears, a lot of slap tears. Um, and, uh, so we'll see a lot of that. We see a lot of different impingement type stuff, um, whether it be a tendinopathy, tendinitis, bursitis, something like that along those lines. Um, so we'd see a lot of that, you know, in general population, I think that, um, you know, especially the older general population, you're going to see way more rotator cuff changes, um, which, you know, rotator cuff changes in, in the uh, rotator cuff tear in the overhead athlete is, is not good if you're dealing with that. So, you know, uh, ideally we don't see a lot of that, but you know, if, and when we do, unfortunately it's, um, a pretty difficult process for them. Um, you know, arthritic changes, believe it or not, we, you know, we do see some arthritic changes, you know, they've put their bodies through quite a lot, you know, by the age of 30. And, and so, you know, a lot of times there are different bone spurs and arthritic changes happening at that AC joint. Um, and so, you know, we'll, we'll definitely deal, deal with some of that stuff as well. Absolutely. So the, uh, you did a great job in the, in the, uh, DVD. It's a two part DVD. The, the first half Thank is going you. over the anatomy biomechanics and the, the second part or the second DVD is actually exercise strategies. So I wonder if you could really uh, explain maybe the role of the scapula in optimizing shoulder biomechanics, because it's, that's so important. Yeah, yeah I totally agree. And, you know, I still use the concept of, scapular stability, right? I've used that term forever. Uh, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks, I suppose, but, yeah. um, you know, to, to not really think of it as scapular stability, because if the scapula were meant to be stable, it would have a much better bony contraction or bony connection to the body than the AC joint. Right. <laughs> uh, so there's really nothing about the scapula that's meant to be stable. It's, it's attached to our body via muscular connection. So it's really about controlled mobility, right? And having that controlled mobility of upward and downward rotation and movement of the scapula in order to maintain the link tension relationship of the rotator cuff. And that, maintenance of the link tension relationship really helps keep our humeral head centrated in that glenohumeral joint. And so um, that really allows us to to have a really well-functioning shoulder. So, so, you know, to try to get away, even if we're going to use the term scapular stability, like to just recognize and acknowledge 
that we're really not trying to have the scapula be stable, right? To me, stability is non-moving, um, you know, and, and some people cue or, you know, cued in the past, I want you to pinch your shoulder blades, lock them down and back. You know, and that's not really what the scapula needs to be doing as we're lifting our arm up over our head. You know, we want that controlled mobility. And so to really kind of look at it from a concept of controlled mobility versus stability, I think begins to sort of allow us to look at the shoulder. You know, one thing I feel like I have to ask you about, so... And, and you mentioned this in the DVD, but the um, the importance of breathing. So how does breathing tie into the shoulder girdle complex and, and why is that so important? I think, you know, for me, breathing ties into to everything. And, you know, there's there's that difference between between breathing and respiration, right? Respiration is that natural automatic exchange of gases that occurs um, and we don't think about it, right? Whereas breathing, breathing is affected by our actions. It's affected by our emotions and vice versa. And so we really can utilize breath as a therapeutic exercise to either enhance mobility or stability in an area, depending on what we want to do. And so, you know, the shoulder complex is no different from that. You know, if I wanted to um, improve stability of, let's say, <laughs> the scapula, right? If I want to improve right. how that thing is um, being um, controlled, you know, it needs to start to work off of a pretty solid base. And so, you know, it's it's kind of the difference between, not that I would recommend it, but squatting on a physio ball or squatting on the ground, right? If you have, if you're squatting on the ground, you have way more stability than if you're squatting on a physio ball. Same thing here. If our trunk, right, if our lumbar spine and our core stability is solid, then our scapula is going to have a better foundation from which to move from. So that's number one. And we can utilize breathing um, and our expiratory reserve volume to really help with stability at our lumbar spine. And so that's one way we can have breathing help us. We can have breathing help us from a mobility standpoint if, you know, kind of we start to think about where um, the origin and insertions are of, let's say, the serratus anterior. And I always mess up which one's the origin and which one's the insertion. So we'll say the origin (laughs) is at the medial border and the insertion is at the ribs. Um, And so, you know, we see so many people with upper extremity issues who have medial winging issues, right? So then we start to do um, serratus anterior push-ups, push-ups with a plus or whatever, and we try to give some quote-unquote stabilization back to the scapula, but yet we never give mobility to the other end. And so if we're going to try to introduce more quote-unquote stability to the one end of the serratus anterior, we have to allow mobility at the other end. But yet so many of our patients and our athletes' rib cages are not very mobile. Their thoracic spine is not very mobile. So we can utilize breathing to help self-mobilize some of those areas at the rib cage that can be locked down. Once we give some mobility at that end, now the serratus can move at that opposite end. It can start to give a little, um, get a little stability more at that medial scapular border side. So, you know, the, the give and take between stability and mobility is present everywhere in our body. And so if we try to take mobility from one place, we've got to give it back to another, vice versa with stability. And, um, and, and that's, that's really, I guess, a really long way to answer <laughs> how I utilize uh, breathing for both stability and mobility when it when it comes to helping with shoulder pathologies. Yes, yes. Now, so in addition to breathing, what would maybe be a key stability exercise for the scapula? And then on the flip side, what would be a key mobility exercise for the scapula? 
Yeah, I, um, you know, for me, again, like that stability, mobility concept is just super intertwined. And so, um, you know, really working on controlling the mobility of the scapula. For me, I think um, there's a couple ways to do it. You know, I show one exercise in the DVD where I utilize a TheraBand wrapped around someone basically as an external serratus anterior, and they basically are doing an open chain flexion type of a movement. Um, and really what they have to do is they have to engage that force couple of the lower trap, upper trap, and serratus anterior in a perfect manner um, in order to raise their arm up over their head. And if that doesn't happen, then the band usually rolls up on their upper back and gets tangled in their hair and it hurts and nobody likes it. So we untangle it from the hair and do it again. And usually people do it properly because they don't want it (laughs) tangled up in their hair again. Um, So just being able to kind of utilize those tools um, to provide the body uh, an environment to sort of learn from, from that controlled mobility standpoint. And in the same manner, I'll do that same exercise, but just in a closed chain position um, in like the downward dog to plank type position. And so I love incorporating yoga movements um, into my rehabilitation process. And so getting, getting somebody into that plank position and having them push back into a downward dog, same thing, um, really getting some nice um, closed chain, um, you know, compressive feedback into the joint, really allowing some centration of that humeral head into that glenoid um, and having a controlled upward and downward mobility of, of the scapula as they move from downward dog to plank. Um, those are probably two of my favorite, my favorite exercises right there. Okay. And just going back to what you said when you opened up the, uh, the answer to the question is that it's really a um, interplay between stability and mobility. Correct. Okay. Perfect. Uh, let's talk about the rotator cuff a little bit. Is there maybe an exercise or two that you see a lot of value with as far as for specific rotator cuff strengthening? Now, so years ago when I was in the clinic, uh, you know, we used to do a lot of the TheraBand exercises, internal, external rotation and things like that. I've, I've changed my approach a little bit, um, well, significantly on how I approach rotator cuff strengthening. I'm curious, you know, what, what do you see as maybe some of the high value exercises for the cuff? Sure. I, you know, and I, I think you're, I'm in the same boat as you, you know, I really have sort of changed my approach with the rotator cuff and, you know, when you start to really examine the rotator cuff and the four muscles that make that up and what they do, um, you know, from an internal rotation standpoint, you know, I'm going to choose latissimus and pec major over the subscapularis from an internal rotation side, you know, and, um, you know, from an external rotation side, you know, we do get a lot of help from the posterior deltoid. Um, you know, obviously the, the minor teres minor and and infraspinatus are, are, external rotators as well. Um, but you know, we have a lot of help with this rotation. And so, you know, it's just hard to believe that that like, yes, from an action standpoint, that certainly is what the rotator cuff does, but when they work as a group, right. When they work together as a functioning unit of four, their job is to really centrate the humeral head, uh, in the glenoid. And when that doesn't happen, we get major symptoms of shoulder impingement and shoulder crepitus. And so I really started to train my rotator cuff like that more to help centrate the humeral head. And so 
you know, getting in positions of um, downward dog or side plank or some of those other exercises that I demonstrate in that second DVD, for me really is the way to go. You know, if I'm dealing with someone who is post-op and absolutely needs to begin some muscle activation of their posterior cuff, for sure. The best way from an EMG standpoint, lay them down on their side, put a pillow underneath their elbow and have them externally rotate, you know, but nine times out of 10, that's not what I'm necessarily dealing with. You know, I'm dealing with someone who's not post-op and and who has a much more complex problem. And so to really start to work the rotator cuff the way, you know, I feel like it really functions in daily life, which is that centration of the humeral head so we don't get impingement is really sort of the way I treat the rotator cuff. Now, so I mentioned uh, before we started the interview here that I wanted to ask you about kettlebells and maybe how a kettlebell could be used in a rehab approach. So I'm wondering your thoughts and comments on on that and maybe where you would use a kettlebell. Yeah, but, you know, unfortunately, especially now with uh, with the U.S. men's national team, you know, the equipment I have at my disposal and what I use uh, <laughs> during any type of intervention is completely limited by what country I'm in. Sure. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, I don't always get to necessarily choose the tool that I would ideally choose to use. But, um, but you know, I, when I do have kettlebells at, at my disposal, I use them all the time. You know, I love, I love that concept of packing, right. The shoulder yes. packing and which really is just another word for centration, which is, is what the other Pavel, Pavel Collage talks about in his dynamic neuromuscular stabilization system. And so, um, you know, I think that concept resonates across the board. And, um, so that's really what I have used it for. I love it. And, and the same thing, you know, that the Turkish getup for me from an upper extremity standpoint, uh, just has been such a valuable activity all around, you know, Greg Cook obviously talks quite a bit about that and, and, you know, to get more information, I definitely would, would look up some of his work, but those are always the things that I use that Turkish getup for too. And, um, you know, the utilization of the kettlebell is just, is just been gigantic for that. Absolutely. If you had to say maybe a, a secret or the, or the key to optimizing shoulder joint function, what would be the key? So depend. I'll say the typical, you know, thing. So dependent on the person. Totally dependent. Um, let, let, but, me, let me restate. Know, let me, me restate that though. So actually, so maintaining a healthy shoulder. What's the key to maintaining a healthy shoulder? Yeah, I, you know, for me, I think it's posture. You know, and I think a lot of people will be surprised to hear that, but you know, we cannot outrep poor posture. You know, if we're constantly hanging on our ligaments, constantly hanging on the muscle and fascial tissues that run along the posterior aspect of our mid-back, you know, our muscles are constantly in stress trying to prevent our head from falling forward off of our body, Um, you know, then these things don't have the opportunity to really help us function. You know, and when we when we sit slouched like that, when we sit rounded, we really close off that subacromial space. That subacromial space is so small to begin with, we don't have much room to make it smaller. You know, especially as we age or if we've done a lot of training in life, chances are you've got some bone spurs in there. Maybe you have some thickened bursa or you know, if you, if you do have an active inflammation in there, you want as much space in that subacromial um, space as possible so you're not constantly biting the tissue that's irritated. 
Yeah. And so to me, just posture, you know, it kills me when I've spent, you know, 30 or 45 minutes working with a guy on his shoulder stuff. And then he goes and grabs his protein shake and he sits on the table with terrible posture. I'm like, oh, you're outdoing everything we just did. So, yeah, yeah. so for me, I mean, the answer is simply, is simply posture. If, if I can have a shoulder, um, a person with shoulder pain, simply work on that as their homework that I'm thrilled. Yeah. You know what, Sue, I think that's a great answer because if you think about posture and, well, poor posture and how that would affect the whole shoulder girdle, it's, it's huge. So I think that's a great answer. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so people can go to otpbooks.com to check out the DVD. As always, Larry Draper always puts a lot of extras in the DVD products, which is really fantastic. Yes. Tons of stuff. So it's always such a great resource. Are there any final thoughts or things that people need to know about, about this shoulder DVD and, and who would you actually say that should get this product? Yeah. You know, I made the DVD with, um, PTs in mind, athletic trainers, you know, the allied healthcare professional, uh, really in mind, personal trainers, strength coaches, those types of people that are, are working within the arena, you know, so many times now with, with the way our healthcare system runs, um, you know, very rarely does a personal trainer deal with someone who's not in pain, right? Like everyone's walking into, right. into different uh, facilities across the country in pain. And so people are really kind of having to learn how to manage that stuff. And so that's really what I, what I had aimed for. It's, it's been a nice surprise. I, I have a cousin who's a police officer and um, he was having some shoulder issues. And, and so gave him the DVD and it was, it's really interesting, you know, because even though the anatomy, he didn't necessarily understand all of the anatomy or the stuff on the first DVD, he found it interesting to learn about the shoulder because, you know, no one had really spent any time with him kind of explaining what was going on or the different parts of the shoulder, what's going on. So he found it helpful, even though he didn't necessarily understand all the anatomy. And then he's been doing the exercises on the second DVD, which is great. So it's kind of been a nice surprise that the, uh, the lay person has been able to get, um, get some benefit from it as well, which is, which has been a fantastic bonus for me. Excellent. Excellent. So we do have some listeners on the show that are PTs or PT students. I'm wondering what advice, maybe just something simple that you can offer them. Yeah. I always tell people, you know, stick with your foundations. I mean, especially if you want to get into sports medicine or, you know, I have so many students contacting me that they, you know, want to work with athletes and want to work in sports and just, you know, just keep in mind that, Sports is a subspecialty of orthopedics and to get a really solid foundation in orthopedics is going to be huge. I think, you know, I think sometimes we want to skip over some of the foundation stuff because it's not quite as sexy or fun as some of the other stuff, but you know, you really need to have a solid foundation in those things. So that's always my recommendation. Absolutely. And I'll just actually add one thing that I just thought of. Um, when I was a PT, I had uh, really great mentors early on and that made such a huge difference for me. You know, I was very fortunate to be oh, yeah. uh, put in some good learning situations. And it really just accelerated my learning as a, as a PT. So that's my two cents on that one. hundred <laughs> percent. I couldn't agree more with that. Absolutely. So I have a couple of quick rapid fire questions and then uh, the final question before we wrap up. So the uh, first question is uh, one of your favorite fitness or performance books that you would recommend. Ooh, right now, my favorite is the high performance training book that, um, David Joyce had edited. Um, 
I have a chapter in there on flexibilities, uh, but I am finally getting through some of the other chapters. My my stack of things to read is gigantic. Um, yes. That is a fantastic strength and conditioning book that every chapter I'm reading, I'm just loving one after another. It's a fantastic resource. Number two is who has influenced your career the most as a PT? Oh, wow. You know, I'm going to give a surprising answer. Uh, his name is Matt Marin. He was my very, very first boss uh, when I first graduated PT school. He's not even practicing as a PT anymore. He's in medical sales. Um, and I mean, right from the beginning, you know, as you said, having mentors yes. uh, was huge. And he, from minute one of my career, um, you know, took the time to really make me realize it's not just the source of pain, it's the cause of the pain. Try to figure out what's going on, figure out the puzzle from it. And he really set that foundation for me um, that I've carried with me throughout my entire career. That's awesome. That's awesome. Final question is, uh, what do you consider your greatest strength as a physical therapist? My greatest strength? Um, I feel like I've got I'm, I'm going to say two things I feel like are <laughs> really good strengths of mine. Um, the first I think is, is the subjective, you know, I spend so much time talking with my athlete and, you know, a lot of times when I was had students, you know, everyone wants to skip over the subjective and go, you know, right to the fun objective stuff. Um, but man, I spend a lot of time talking with the athletes, what they've gone through already, what treatments have worked, what haven't worked, um, what their frustrations are. You know, there's so many times that they haven't been listened to, um, you know, or rushed through stuff that really kind of just giving them the time to say what they need to say is gigantic. Um, and so I spend a lot of time in the subjective. And then I think the second thing is just my, my curiosity. Um, you know, if, if I can't figure it out, that doesn't mean that they're, that they're crazy or they don't have pain or they're, you know, magnifying something. No, it's because I'm not figuring it out. And so just, that constant need to figure out the puzzle. Um, I guess some would probably call that OCD and it probably works in my favor at some times. Um, (laughs) but yeah, that constant need to figure out the puzzle. I mean, if they're, if they're 80% better and they can't get to that a hundred percent, I'm not seeing something and I just need to continue to, to figure out what, what that thing is. So, so I think those, those two things, my, my, my constant subjective, um, you know, or my, my comprehensive subjective to just listen to what they have to say. And then my constant need to, to solve the puzzle. <laughs> that's, that's really awesome. And, you know, so we have a lot of, uh, coaches, trainers that listen to the show and that, that's really great because listening to clients, listening to, uh, patients, you can learn so much from that. I mean, that's really where you find out what's going on before you do the objective stuff, listen, talk and understand people. You know what I mean? So I just, I I think that's just really fantastic. And I hope that people can take away, um, that advice. 
So where, where can people find you online and learn more? You mentioned systemicdryneedling.com. Is that your main website? So systemicdryneedling.com, <laughs> that is going to have all my dry needling information and um, course information there. Sufalsoni.com is going to have basically everything else um, that's not dry needling. So where else I'll be speaking as well. Um, and then my social media stuff, you know, pretty much Sufalsoni or Sufalsoni PTATC is typically my my handle. So I'm not too difficult to find online. <laughs> Excellent. All right. And then I have uh, one last final question. This is my big question. I always wrap up the interview with, and uh, what that is, what is the big advice you have for listeners after hearing this interview today? I think to just continue to, to seek, right. Seek to understand, um, seek. There's always stuff out there that, that we don't know. Um, and I think that the more we learn, the less we know. And so that constant seeking, right, that that beginner's mind, it's I opened my perform better talk this year uh, or last year with it called Shoshin, which is have a beginner's mind. Yes. Um, and so, you know, no matter how much of an expert you think you are at something, approach it all with a beginner's mind. That's a big part of why I do the show, <laughs> you know, it's just to keep educating <laughs> and learning and and hopefully people take action with this. So uh, keep seeking. And uh, I think that's really great advice, Sue. Thank you so much for this interview. This has been great. Oh, great. Thanks so much for having me on, Scott. I really appreciate it. All right, guys. Just a couple of quick things here before I sign off for the week. And the first thing is, if you haven't checked out otpbooks.com, that is On Target Publications, the website by Larie Draper. It's a great resource. It's a great website for a lot of educational products, books, DVDs, a lot of great things that you'll find there on that website. And uh, you'll find a ton of great resources there. And the great thing is that when you purchase the product, the DVD or, or book or whatever it is, there are always so many extra things that you get from Lurie that uh, really make it a no-brainer decision. So uh, I, I think you'll be uh, very happy with anything that you purchase over there at otpbooks.com. It's a great great resource. And as a matter of fact, in addition to Sue's great new DVD that came out recently, which I highly recommend, uh, Dan John has a brand new book out, which I'm currently reading titled, Can You Go? And this is again, really exceptional as you'd expect from Dan John. So you can find that book over at otpbooks.com. And then number two is the last thing I wanted to mention is the book that Sue mentioned, and that is High Performance Training for Sports. By David Joyce. This is a really, really good book. Now, in all honesty, I have not read this book through entirety yet. It's uh, one of those books that I have sitting in a stack of books in my office that I really haven't gotten to yet. But in flipping through it, thumbing through it, and seeing the content there, she really nailed it. This is a great, great resource it's written by multiple authors, and I think it's a really, uh, a really exceptional and well-done book. So just want to mention that out there to you as well. Again, that book is High Performance Training for Sports. So I am certainly bumping this up on my reading list in addition to a handful of books, a handful of great books that I'm currently reading right now. So uh, that's it, guys. Thank you so much for being here this week. Definitely check out the all-new look, ArdellaTraining.com, and stay tuned for great, great new things to come over there. Thanks for being here, and I'll see you next week on the show. Take care, guys. 
Thanks for listening to the Ardella Training Podcast. Go to ardellatraining.com right now to join Scott's tribe of passionate fitness enthusiasts. Get valuable updates and resources that will help you take it to the next level. Train strong. We'll catch you next time on the Ardella Training Podcast.